Hey, I'm Pastor Colton. As we dive into God's Word today, why don't you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, and I'm going to pray as we get started. God, thank you for your Word. Thank you for your grace. And God, we pray that as we open your Word today, that that your grace would just, uh, that we would have a sense of who you are, that we would marvel at how wonderful your grace is, and that, Lord, it would change our hearts too. We pray this in your name. Amen. Back when I first moved to the USA, I had arrived at school and I had kind of this strange encounter. I met a young man who was my age, and when I told him I was from Canada, he proceeded to cut down Canada's health care by stating, I know you might like it, but you're wrong, in a rather rude way. Uh, needless to say, his approach to theology wasn't much different. For the friends who agreed with him, he defended their views with force and power. But for those who didn't, there were cutting remarks, mocking, and statements of the facts. And that alienated other classmates. He knew it all, and he would debate anyone who would disagree with him. Debating with grace and kindness didn't matter, as long as he won the argument. Maybe you have people in your life like that. Some of us will find these kinds of people on our Facebook feeds. Hey, some of us might, if we're honest, be these very people. But we come to a place in Acts where we find perhaps one of the best and most extreme examples. We come to a guy named Saul. In the last scene we see this guy appear in, in the story of Acts, he's the one who's orchestrating, or at least approving of, the stoning to death of a wonderful servant named Stephen. And while we find him here as our text starts off, in Acts chapter 9, it says this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Well, Saul, it seemed, got those letters and the seal of approval from the high priest. I mean, why wouldn't he? He was Saul. His resume was a beautiful one for a Jewish leader. He was a Pharisee, which was a back-to-the-Bible sort of movement in its time, a desire to be faithful to the law that was passed on through Moses. And Saul, by his own admission, was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, and he was trained by Gamaliel, a great teacher. As for zeal, he says, persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. I mean, for the Jewish person living under the Roman rule, Saul might have been a breath of fresh air. I mean, he would oppose anyone and anything that undermined the authority of the Jewish religion by almost any means. And as far as righteousness based on the law, he said it was faultless. A shining example of a great Jewish man. If he agreed with you, he'd be a great neighbor and friend. If you found yourself in his group, he was your homeboy. But if not, and really for all who followed Jesus, who are called the way, who believe that Jesus was the Son of God, they were not, well then watch out, because he was quite literally coming for you. Here's Saul's own admission. He says this, I was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another, 
to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Saul was armed with scripture, good training, approval from the high priest, and he was coming to a city near you, hell-bent on taking you down. He was the OG of persecuting Christians. But look what happens to Saul on his way to Damascus. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly... A light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Saul never directly responds to the question, why? But Jesus, before his death and resurrection, spends a lot of time speaking to the Pharisees. And I don't think those words to Pharisees were just wasted words on lost causes, right? Jesus speaks to Pharisees because by the grace of God, Pharisee eyes and hearts can be open to him. That's good news for us. Now, just to explain for a moment what a Pharisee was. A Pharisee was a Jewish leader and teacher. They knew the Old Testament scriptures, and they followed the law to a T. And actually, they formed traditions that would help them follow the law to a T, which they loved actually sometimes even more than the scriptures. Pharisees followed it, and they really wore how well they followed it proudly on their sleeve. They claimed to know God and to see very clearly what God required of them. Which makes Saul's question to Jesus in response to Yahweh in the flesh rather troubling. He asks, Who are you, Lord? Like Saul, this is Yahweh. This is the God who you profess, who you've apparently studied all about. You, a Pharisee from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. How can you not recognize who this is? See, for Saul and for many of the Pharisees, faith was in the facts about God, or certainly in their interpretation of those facts. But faith is more than facts. For many Pharisees, as I said, they thought their right standing with God depended on how well they followed the minute details of God's law. They thought that it was their performance of the law that made them right in God's eyes. They may have had a lot of important facts, but they were actually blind to God's heart and God's grace and call on their lives. Right? It's not insignificant that Saul, after this encounter, is blind. Right? Jesus is revealing through this physical blindness Saul's spiritual state as well. In John 9, Jesus heals a blind man. And then amazed, the the blind man's neighbors take him to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees question him. The blind man tells the Pharisees that, hey, it's Jesus who healed him. The Pharisees have this dispute. Uh, The Bible actually shows that there's a lot of commotion because of this healing. And the conversation gets so intense that when the man who was blind points out that no one who wasn't from God could have healed him, the Pharisees mock him, and they're like, You were born a total sinner. Are you trying to teach us? And they throw him out of the synagogue. Jesus hears about this, and he catches up with the the man who was blind, talks with him, and the man worships Jesus, and says he believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And then Jesus says this, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think that they see that they are blind. Now, some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, are you saying we're blind? 
And then listen to Jesus' response. If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty. But you remain guilty because you claim you can see. Pharisees claimed that they could see. Saul undoubtedly claimed that he could see. That he saw God's word with absolute clarity. But did he? He couldn't even recognize Yahweh when he was right in his presence. He couldn't even recognize God when he was standing right in front of him. He says, who are you, Lord? You know, for many professing Christians in the world today, that might be true. Like, are we so prideful that we claim to see with absolute clarity? Some people do. And then like Saul, they treat other people poorly with harshness and anger or indifference to others. In fact, he and many Pharisees were so blinded by the facts of faith that they couldn't understand the acts of faith, what it really meant to live by faith in God. Paul David Tripp says, faith in God is more than believing the right things. It's living the right way because you believe the right things. Right? Even today, for some professing followers of Jesus, they trust in God for their salvation alone, by grace alone, but you would hardly know it because they're caught up in how they look in front of each other, like Pharisees, consumed mostly with how well they know the intricate details of theology, but missing Christ's heart missing actually embodying the grace of god in their life see saul's encounter with jesus showed him that he was spiritually blind even though he thought he could see clearly but back to jesus first question when jesus asks why are you persecuting me to saul it's a real question what are you doing this for saul who is this really for is this really something that god commanded you to do to murder people or is this for some other reason why, Saul? In John 5, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and I really like how Eugene Peterson's The Message puts it. You have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. But you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. And here I am, standing right before you, and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. Why? And Jesus goes on, your approval means nothing to me because I know you don't have God's love within you. For I've come to you in my Father's name and you've rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. No wonder you can't believe. For you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. Saul and the Pharisees like him are neglecting parts of Scripture to achieve some sort of victory before the eyes of others. In our world today, with so many political divisions and theological divisions and the list goes on, followers of Christ can be tempted to do the same thing. I see an awful lot of social media posts that share a message that the end, like the goal of the message, hey, followers of Christ might agree with, but the means... The way it's communicated is contrary to the way that God would have us go about it. But followers of Christ, we, we share, we post it thinking, hey, the end justifies the means. And that's simply not true. The end and the means need to be lived with integrity. Right? They go hand in hand. See, Saul, in seeking the approval of the high priests and in seeking the approval of his Jewish brothers, had begun pursuing ends by a means out of line with God's law, murdering others. 
And when we do stuff like that, whether it's in an argument or by how we sneer or look at people or not associate with people, we are out of line with God's heart. We might even be making the right point. But if you're a follower of Jesus, living and exemplifying Jesus' character should flow out from believing the right things, right? They can't be separated. And when they are, well, well, that's often why Christ followers receive the criticism of being a hypocrite, right? It's incongruent with the way of Jesus. Jesus isn't criticizing the Pharisees for what they're doing that's in line with Scripture. But he says that Pharisees have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And I pray that when we who believe in Jesus open the scriptures, that we don't just see the facts, but we see the very heart of God. That our eyes are open to God's heart for the lost, those who see themselves righteous and those who sin openly. Let's pick up where we left off in verse 5 after Saul asked, who's he seeing? Here's what Jesus says. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Saul says more about this in Acts 26. He says, Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In an instant, the radical grace of God had confronted and overcome the radical hate of Saul. And there are three things in this passage I, I see that are, work, that are at work in Saul's heart, as well as in the heart of the followers of the way, that really demonstrate what the radical grace of Jesus does. Radical grace leads to real repentance, radical love, and a reorientation toward witness rather than winning. Radical grace leads to real repentance, radical love, and a reorientation towards witness rather than winning. First, radical grace leads to real repentance. When Saul first came to Damascus, it was to find and imprison and kill the disciples. And after his encounter with Jesus and Ananias, who we'll read read a bit about later, rather than opposing those disciples, he's with them. And now he goes to synagogues not to find followers of the way and prove them wrong, but with the followers of the way to show others that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the Son of God. Saul's conversion had brought about a transformation in character and a 180-degree turn. Now, the Bible describes repentance in two ways, really. One speaks of it as a 180-degree turn. They're going one way, and now, whoop, we're going a completely different way. And it also describes it as a change of heart, a transformation of character. And that experience of conversion had transformed Saul so utterly that he was put on a path 
to open people's eyes and turn them from darkness to light that they may receive forgiveness. Talk about wild. This guy who was going around trying to punish people to death for what he saw as their sin will now be preaching the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Like what a shift in thought in life. And his mission in life was completely altered. He was now living for something else entirely. It wasn't about power or prestige or winning anymore. It was about witnessing to the radical grace and love of Jesus Christ. Let's continue in Acts 9, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. What a moment. Ananias knows a bit about Saul. He knows this guy is bad news for people like me. It's like almost like turning myself into the police, but worse. <laughs> Yet Jesus sends Ananias to Saul. And all at once, we see Jesus transforming power, unmerited grace for sinners, and his commissioning and calling of his followers to participate and bear witness to the love of Christ. Ananias ready to follow God, was the first believer called to bear witness to the love of Christ to Saul, a huge enemy. What a powerful encounter. See, radical grace leads to radical love. How would you expect someone to approach a run-in with the person who was at one point their greatest enemy? Maybe some verbal lashing, bringing along your 10 biggest friends, you know, ganging up on them to make sure an argument or whatever goes your way, straight-up revenge. Well, Ananias is being sent from Jesus, and Jesus doesn't do those sorts of things. The man who said, Father, forgive them, and the people who had, he, he said, Father, forgive them, about the people who had called him, killed him on a Roman cross. He also said this, but I say, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. If you love those only who love you, and I might add and agree with you, what reward is there for that, he says. Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. 
You know, it's interesting. What's happening in, a lot in 2020 is that our friends can become our enemies when really the love of Christ compels us to treat our enemies like our friends. Thankfully, we find in Ananias the gentle, loving grace of God. See, for Ananias, the radical grace of Jesus had reoriented him toward radical love. Can you believe what Ananias says when he sees Saul? Brother Saul. Brother Saul. That's bold and affectionate. What a statement. Could you imagine saying that one day to the person that like frustrates you the most? The person you avoid like the plague when you have to be in the same area as them? What if we loved our enemies like that? What if we treated people who post stuff that we disagreed with, with affection, with genuine love and care, knowing perhaps that one day they might be glorifying God in heaven with us? Like, would that change our approach? I know it would, and it has, actually, throughout Christian history. Richard Vermbrand, once a communist prisoner, he wrote this of the church in prison under communist rule. Later, the communists who had tortured us were sent to prison too. Now the tortured and the torturer were in the same cell. And while the non-Christians showed hatred toward their former inquisitors and beat them, Christians took their defense, even at the risk of being beaten themselves and accused of being accomplices with communism. See, it wasn't about being in the group, but about loving Jesus he said, he goes on, I have seen Christians give away their last slice of bread. We were given one slice a week. And the medicine that could save their lives to a sick communist torturer who was now a fellow prisoner. This is costly grace for sure. It is like the grace that Christ showed us when he gave his life for ours while we were still sinners, still enemies of God. Ananias, of course, was wary of Saul because of what he'd heard. But he was more wary of God's grace. Ananias was empowered by the Holy Spirit now to love his enemy and to help bring about his enemy's reconciliation to God and God's people. Like, are you ready for that? Could you do it today? Or do you have to win an argument or make your point by whatever means? Another thing we find in Saul and Ananias is that radical grace leads us to be more concerned with being a witness than being a winner. When we first encountered Saul, he was all about crushing the opposition. So naturally, you might expect, hey, when he switches sides, he would be all about crushing his former Pharisee friends. But that's not what happens. Instead of becoming a winner, he becomes a witness. Christ had called Saul to be his witness. He said, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus uses that same word witness to those gathered at the beginning of Acts. It's for all of us who confess Christ. What does that mean, to bear witness? It means to affirm what we have seen and heard or experienced to embody and embrace the radical, life-giving grace of God that has so transformed us. And not to keep that back for ourselves, but to give testimony. And how do we give that testimony? Well, it starts with, like Saul, the story of our transformation. 
Are we transformed by God's grace? Do we recognize who we once were? When, when Jesus encounters Saul, it's right in the midst of his sin. He hadn't repented of anything when he encountered him. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. Right? If anyone was due the righteous right hand of God across the face, it would be Saul. But that had fallen on Jesus. And it's the same for us. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Saul didn't get his life on track before coming to Jesus Christ. Some of you listening might be like Saul right now. Maybe you are beginning to realize that you are rebelling and you are so far from God that it would take a miracle for him to change your heart. I pray that you will have an encounter with the risen Jesus and that it will shake you to your core and turn you around. Or perhaps at this point, you've proudly believed that you were, you were just right. right. We all do at some point. And you've had a pattern of pushing that in a way that would crush others. And maybe like Saul, you're willing to push your own desire for winning at any cost and look to those in your tribe for justification for the way that you're living. But maybe now you're beginning to see that you've actually been blindly working in a direction away from God. Or maybe, and this can happen to many of us who are jaded, maybe you just don't care to engage anymore. You'll pray maybe, but you can't be bothered. You'd rather stay in your own world. You know, I'm glad Jesus didn't do that. And he actually does call us to engage with people, but not the way the world does, but on his terms, in gentleness and grace. He didn't win in the world's eyes when he was crucified on the cross, dying to save others, but all the same, he engaged. He wasn't passively indifferent to the many people who he loved that were dying apart from the grace of God. So will you be a witness not passive, but active. I just want to lay out how the most righteous, theologically infallible, incorruptible, flawless, and wisest person to ever walk the earth approached those who were lost, who were going astray, who were actually his enemies. Because the way he treated them, the way he interrupted lives by coming down and dwelling among us, led God's enemies to become his friends says of Jesus, he can deal gently with the ignorant and those going astray. Jesus says, let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. James says of him, the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. The Lord, the Lord, full of mercy, full of compassion, this covenant love. Jesus is like that to a people who were dead in their trespasses, trespasses and sins. And that's what we were, dead in our sin. And we all still stumble now. Dane Ortland, the theologian, says, As God did not at first choose you because you were high, he will not now forsake you because you are low. You can be humble and gentle. Jesus' heart was gentle and humble while we were lost in our sin, dead in our trespasses. And for those now found, will it become less? Do you now think you need to earn his favor and grace by being right all the time and parading for victory? I hope as we've looked at Saul's life that we've seen at least something of the change that radical grace 
brought to Saul's heart. Unmerited, radical grace. And I hope, too, that we've seen how Ananias was able to embody the radical grace and love that Jesus showed Saul so that we, too, in a world full of sinners and sufferers and enemies of God, just like me, if I'm honest, can approach our enemies out of a transformed life, filled with radical love that seeks to witness and see the eyes of those in darkness open to the beautiful grace of Jesus Christ, turning enemies of God to friends of God with gentleness and love. You know that guy at my school who I was telling you about at the beginning of the sermon? Well, over time, through faithful men of God coming alongside of him and saying, brother, like Ananias did to Saul, God's grace transformed and is still transforming the way he speaks. It is filled with so much more gentleness and grace and humility than ever before. You know, the hardest of Pharisee hearts has the most rebellious and radically sinful heart can be changed by the radical grace of God. Have you taken that into yourself? And do you hope for that for your enemies too? Are you ready and willing to participate with God in the business of changing hard hearts with the message of Jesus? May you and I be among those whose hearts are changed and whose concern is to witness to God's grace with great gentleness and love. Amen.